I'm drinking uh, Dirty Chai again. Oh, I'm drinking uh, Starbucks Blonde Coffee. Uh, classic. Classic, classic Starbucks, yeah. <laughs> um, also, actually, I watched the that Outcry documentary. Did I watched you? the whole thing, yeah. Well, that's a weird segue to prehab, but yeah. go ahead. <laughs> Where do you where do you want to start? Well, um, I learned about prehab from you, but I know that you probably learned it elsewhere. So I, I think our our viewers and and myself included would be curious to know where you first heard about prehab and, and how you got involved in that. Yeah, so well, let me start by saying that uh, um, there's a, a great uh, you know organization in in Michigan, the University of Michigan Health System, that just does incredible work in general on on surgical quality and patient safety. So uh, I know in, in another podcast, uh, depending on whether or not you release this one first or that one first, we talk about um, the work the University of Michigan did on, on opioid uh, reduction in surgery. And uh, they've also done some fantastic work on prehabilitation. So I first learned about prehab actually from the same person we mentioned on the opioid piece uh, from uh, Dr. Mike Englesby. Um, and for those who don't know Mike, uh, he's a, an, um, a transplant surgeon um, out of the University of Michigan Health System. He's also the, uh, the director of the um, Michigan Surgical Quality Collaborative, so that state, statewide Blue Cross funded uh, quality collaborative. And I met him a number of years ago. Um, really, actually, I'd reached out and, and started talking to him about what we're doing back at, at, uh, in CMSMD um, several years ago. And he was telling me about some some relevant work that his team was doing on prehab. And uh, of course I said, Mike, what the heck is prehab? I've never heard of this before. And and kind of the way that he described it is very much about, hey, you know what? Um, as you mentioned, Alan, when you have a surgery, your body's undergoing you know major stressors. Um, and kind of what happens if you, um, gosh, um, I wish that um, we could uh, uh, draw a graph on the screen here, but the idea is that like, let's say, you had on the y-axis uh, a patient's physical function, and on the x-axis was was time um, before and after surgery. What you find is that when a patient has surgery, because of the stress of opening up the body and manipulating and all that, your physical function declines, right? So that's why after surgery you're in pain, you can't really walk, it's hard to eat, and so your function declines. And the idea is that over time you try to recover um, back to, back to your baseline. But the idea, the idea behind prehabilitation is that, well, what if you trained for the surgery? What if you strengthened your, your physical and mental status before the surgery so that your baseline function actually starts off higher because you've trained for the surgery? So that way, when there is a, a dip in your function after the surgery, the actual dip is not as, as, as deep and you're able to actually return to your baseline function faster. And so theoretically, what that means is that your body is able to get back to baseline sooner. You actually recover faster. Your length of stay is shorter. You're at a lower risk of complications. Um, and so the patient's outcome is better. So, I, so basically, theory is get stronger before surgery and therefore recover faster after surgery. And that, that's prehab in a nutshell. Preventing frailty. And, and now is that uh, when you're recovering to baseline after prehab, say after your surgery, um, the baseline is that based on the initial assessment where your baseline was. It's, they're not talking about you return back to you know the the trained version of yourself, but back to baseline. 
Is that the I, mean, idea? I think people would be thrilled if you were able to return to your uh, the, the the new baseline you created when you trained right. for surgery. But I think that most of the goal was to just to get a bit strong before surgery and then get back to your 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 original original baseline at the very least. I think right. I think we'd love it if patients were able to maintain a, a new higher baseline, but I don't know if that's realistic for a lot of folks. Right. And obviously, we wouldn't be bringing up this topic if there wasn't a ton of research on it. Um, there's been... Oh. Sorry, um, do you mind if I tell you one more story? Please, yeah. Yeah, so um, if you asked uh, Micah Anglesby, where did he learn prehab from? Right. And who actually point to um, Franco Carley, who I think is one of the, uh, the grandfathers of prehab, I think. And for those who don't know Franco, he's this brilliant physician out of McGill, Montreal. And I believe Mike Anglesby learned prehab from him. And I remember, uh, I forget which conference I was at, but uh, we ended up meeting with, with Franco Carly um, at this like, hotel lobby. And, uh, um, and then he kind of was also teaching me from his perspective, like how he defined prehab. And, and you know, like that graph that I, I, was, I was kind of drawing in the air, I was showing you, uh, yeah. Franco actually took out a piece of paper and was like drawing that graph for me and using that to, to illustrate prehab to me. Um, so that, that really like, like that's how I remember it from from him. Um, so, anyways, like he's like a, a brilliant when it comes to prehab, and and certainly for those who are looking for more info on like what's the basis for prehab, the work that both Mike and Frankel have done have been very foundational, I think, for for uh, the prehab concept here. And I know Franco's done a ton of work all across the world uh, with research respect to prehab and enhanced recovery after surgery. They're very big and involved in quality improvement in general. Um, in terms of the actual outcomes that are, are being improved from prehab, it's you know, when I first learned about it, it's surprising. It's surprising how many outcome measures are actually improved by just uh, in, you know implementing a, a prehabilitation program. I don't know if we even mentioned it's called prehabilitation. That's the, the, the actual term for it. Um, uh, Dr. Anglesby's group out of Michigan um, I know they they started their prehab component. And they called it MSHOP, I believe, uh, which stood for the, the Michigan Surgical and, and Health Optimization Program. Um, I think what's really neat about their uh, MSHOP or their prehab program is how they've been able to distill the information into very very easy to understand concepts. Um, and they've they've broken it down to like four easy groups. There's the movement, there's breathing, there's eating, and then there's relaxing. And by the way, Alan, we do all those things already day to day. <laughs> That's literally all I do. Well, <laughs> but I, I think it's actually it's quite interesting because they've they've taken those you know everyday things, but then they've actually put in protocols in place and they've they've, they've put in measures to uh, ensure that their patients are actually following uh, the the specific instructions. And so things include I know for like movement uh, as an example would be like increasing activity through. Um, taking a number of steps and and they might be like take 5,000 more steps than you would do on a, on a daily basis um, with breathing it's used the incentive spirometer and, and smoking cessation modules um, for eating it's you know obviously dietary recommendations things like lean proteins uh, really beneficial for the prehab component and then with relaxation things like positive thinking and, and mindset building um, even meditation I've seen in some programs as well, and and what's really neat is the fact that they're they're almost open sourcing this project. They're they're making it available for anyone. They can go ahead and, and download their videos, their uh, PDFs that they have, 
Uh, it's all on their website and, and we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Um, well, I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, let me tell you kind of how, how generous, um, you know, Mike and his team are when it comes to open sourcing this. So, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, I had a family member who was going through a, a, a major surgery and I, I reached out to Mike actually. I said, hey, Mike, um, you know, do you mind sharing your, your latest uh, prehab protocols? And I, I just have a family member that, that, you know, I think would really benefit and I really appreciate anything that you can share. And Mike said, you know what, Josh, uh, I'll do you one better. I will um, have our team actually mail a prehab package with the incentive spirometer and, or, and it, uh, which you may not have a spirometer, but like the DVD package and like the booklets and all that kind of stuff uh, to that family member directly. And also we'll give you a hotline number. So if that person has any questions about how to do prehab, um, they can call anytime. And I said, oh my gosh, Mike, that's, that's incredible. Like, that's so generous of you. Okay, how much does it cost? I'll, I'll pay for it, no problem. And he said, no, 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 Josh, like, don't worry about it. We'll just send it. And, then, and this is the type of people that's part of that team. And so it, it's, they clearly are like mission-driven, well-intentioned, truly patient-centered. So, I mean, kudos to that team. They really worked hard to, to take this model and make it available to everyone. Definitely. And, and that's across borders. Like that's, that's. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Wow. Um, I know on on that website, um, for instance, they've posted their earlier studies that they've done on, on prehab and obviously they've been funded since then to do uh, continued work and, and um, expanding across different procedures and, and more patient sample sizes and all that. But I think what's shocking to me is just by improving the patient baseline the very first study that they've released, uh, this was maybe back in 2010 or 2013. Uh, I don't have the date exactly on that, but it, it was it was a few years back. Um, what was amazing was to see that there's actually a, a re- reduction in length of stay for a patient. So because their baseline function is better, they can recover a bit faster. Their body's more attuned to uh, the physical stress of, of a surgery. And, and they actually reduced length of stay by like 2.3 days on average for, and that was like a hundred patient uh, sample size versus control. And Alan, just, just to um, like hop onto that. I think one thing that, that we should cover is that uh, I think when people hear what prehab is conceptually, they think it's, they think they might be already doing it or it's common sense. So I think most surgeons or, or, or anesthesiologists or nurses would say, well, yeah, I do tell my patient to eat healthier. I do tell them to stop smoking. I do tell them to maybe be more active before surgery. But, but, but that's not what we're talking about, right? Like, that's just table stakes. Like, we're talking about, like, a prescriptive regimen. So just to give people a sense of, like, what they were doing at, in Michigan for this M-Shop prehab program. So, you know, they were getting patients to um, achieve, I forget the exact number, Alan, but it's like a few thousand steps at, at least per day. And I think they, they're getting, yeah, then they get increased. I think they're asked to do your best to increase it maybe, like, 500 steps more every day until you reach the, a plateau. And they'd have to track it. They'd have to record it. They'd have to send it back so that people know are they hitting their steps or not. So there was accountability built into just meeting certain activity goals. It wasn't just telling a patient to exercise for it. It was, no, you're prescribed exercise. Um, Same with the breathe aspect, which is using uh, incentive spirometer. So patients are actually um, taught to do incentive spirometry um, daily for two weeks leading up to the actual surgery. So they were training their lungs to build their lung capacity. So again, it wasn't just telling the patient, hey, use it a few times. It was, no, 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 you're going to do it for two weeks. We're going to track it. You're going to be compliant with it. And then same with, you know, proper eating and, and, and um, positive thinking and all that. So it truly was like prescriptive. Um, and, uh, and, and so I, I think it's about like, 
if you empower the patient to follow those steps, of course they'll get stronger. If you just tell them theoretically exercise right. more, like that's not that's not going to get uh, an actual outcome. Right. Or or you know maybe a small percentage of patients will actually do that. But if there's no if there's no targets to meet, then how is it possible to to have your patients to actually follow that? Um, yeah, and just so you know, like um, they were pretty innovative. Like they use uh, even back like years years ago, right? They were using um, pretty uh, common technology. So I remember like patients were getting text messages or emails even you know years ago through MShot about you know um, how you know, did you like do your sensorometry today? How many like, how many steps did you walk? And then if they met their goal, they'd get uh, positive feedback. If they didn't, they'd get, you know, maybe constructive feedback. So even back then, they were using technology to kind of scale out their efforts a bit. I know that they, they expanded their initial study to uh, a statewide thing. So obviously, hmm. um, you know, Mike's really involved in the, the MSPC. Um, do you, do you want to shed a bit of light on, on the state study that, that was conducted? Yeah, so so Mike's team ended up getting this uh, CMS-funded uh, innovation uh, grant. I think it was like $6 million or something like that uh, to roll this out to multiple hospitals. They ended up, um, I think, rolling it to about 21 hospitals across Michigan. Um, they had you know, thousands of patients um, get prehab through this uh, initiative. And they enrolled all kinds of patients who've had major inpatient surgery. So cardiac uh, surgery, hernias, colons, transplants, HPV, thoracic, skinny. Um, and they had, I think, three to four, I think three or four thousand patients uh, during a certain time period went through this. And then um, they actually published a, a really good article in the uh, the Journal of the American College of Surgeons, um, where they compared uh, a bit over five hundred patients who um, got prehab with a thousand kind of case matched patients with the same you know comorbidities, demographics, etc. And long story short, they found that patients who got prehab were uh, statistically significantly uh, had sorry, statistically significant reductions in length of stay by by one day, and costs by uh, or total costs for up to three months after surgery were about thirty two hundred dollars less um, for patients who went on prehab. Um, and so they demonstrated in a much larger sample set in a well designed study that prehab, and I'm I'm, I'm going to guess it was the same prehab program. For all these different conditions, right? They didn't they didn't make a cardiac prehab and a thoracic prehab. No, it was the right. same prehab format. Just trained all their patients before surgery and had benefit across this whole uh, across all those specialties. I think what we don't know, Alan, is if they were able to segment that data out better, did prehab have a bigger effect on certain specialties, or maybe there's certain you know cardiac or thoracic specific protocols that might have had a bigger benefit but i mean let's be honest like practically speaking even if you just put a standardized pre-op program in all these specialties it's probably benefit right. um and so you know i think that was a that was a great uh, piece that they did to actually um show that it's a scalable type of quality improvement initiative right and to have you know improvements length of stay by a full day you know across all of these programs and and you know over three thousand dollars saved in the the post on three months. It's incredible that it's just these four, you know, areas and it's, it's really simple activity that the patient needs to do. Um, I think it's really neat as well on the MSHOP page, they actually have uh, reference CT scans of their patients. And so yeah. you can actually see, you know, here's what it would look like in a patient who has prehab versus someone who hasn't. And you'll even notice, even if it's a patient with a higher BMI, you just see the, the, the actual quality of the muscles that have been improved and the quality of the scans 
um, on the, on the actual tissue. Yeah. So actually things. maybe just to, to highlight that. So, so that, that I'm going to butcher this, but that type of work is called, um, gosh, I think it's called morphomics, um, is a term and, and that, that work. And I think that's what's kind of the precursor to what they did, uh, in MSHOP. It was, so Stuart Wang is one of the other surgeons involved with, with MSHOP and prehab and one of the, the originators of it. So one to give him a shout out because I, I learned a lot from him as well. And so he did a lot of work on, um, this concept of morphomics, which is basically they, um, they did a bunch of, like you said, CT scans of patients who were going to undergo surgery. And what they found was that patients who, you know, had stronger core muscles, um, were maybe like higher BMI and the ability to withstand the stress of surgery actually did better. So the idea was that using actual anatomy, they were able to find that there's a correlation between that stronger body and, and better outcomes for surgery. And that correlates very well with why you do prehab. And I think, I don't know, they probably did data on this. I, I just don't, don't know it, but they probably did CT scans too of patients who had prehab and found probably some, some positive improvements in that, that core muscle mass and, 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 you know, less, like, less frailty and things like that. Mm -hmm. But shout out to Stuart Planck. He's done some great work on, on morphomics there that they're really relevant to prehab. And I think as well, like there's there's more studies out today than obviously back in 2010, 2013. But um, what's interesting is now there's new research on not only length of stay that's being improved, but there's other outcomes like recovery time in general. It's like, I know there was a, a study led by uh, Franco Carly and Leanne Feldman at, um, at McGill back in, I think this one was completed in 2013. So it was one of the earlier ones in Canada. Um, and it was a study on colorectal surgery patients, and they did a, a prehab intervention. They took a look at, uh, I think it was over a, a two-year period or 23-month period or something. Um, they had maybe a sample of 40 patients on prehab and 40-ish and patients uh, controlled. And what they were looking at was a couple different measures, but one of them was their functional walking capacity. So how far can a patient actually walk in six minutes? Um, it, it's kind of the, the six minute walk test. And then the secondary measure that they were looking at was the self-reported physical activity. So what do patients actually feel about their physical activity uh, as well as quality of life? And what was really neat in their findings was uh, for the prehab group, every, at every single check-in that they had along that 23 month period, the prehab group was able to walk further than the control group, which makes a lot of sense, that conditioning. Uh, but then beyond that, after the surgery, it was almost half the amount of time for the patient to return to a baseline function, uh, which I think is, is that it's outstanding. If you can just condition your patients beforehand and then have them recover in half the amount of time and you offer that to any patient, if you say, hey, I have a way for you to recover in half the amount of time. And I, I'm not sure if it was this study. There was, there's other studies that are out there that we can talk about uh, where their actual pain scores are lower as well their reported pain scores are lower. Uh, if you can mention that to a patient, you offer them, hey, there's a way for you to recover faster and feel less pain and feel stronger before surgery as well as afterwards, would you want to do that? And I think every patient in the world would say yes. Yeah, and I think that's one of the interesting things about when I think about surgery. I mean, I, I don't, let's be honest, like if you're having a surgery, I don't really know how often or, or if ever uh, your surgical team talks to a patient about, hey, you know, if you have this surgery, here's what recovery looks like. Here's, here's what your baseline is now. And here's what your baseline will typically be after surgery. Here's how far you can walk after surgery. Uh, I don't think anyone talks about that stuff. I don't think anyone, I don't think anyone thinks about 
but most people don't think about successful recovery as as caring about functional outcomes like this. How far can you walk afterwards? Which how much can, how well can you breathe afterwards? Your lung capacity. So I think Miguel has done some great work in actually trying to highlight the importance of almost quantifying successful recovery beyond just what was the infection rate, what was the length of stay. It's like no, actually, how the patient can live afterwards kind of right. should matter. Which, by the way, often doesn't, I don't think, ties into reimbursement either. Insurers right. and payers aren't reimbursing for things like how well does the patient recover? What's their functional like, capacity to breathe or walk properly? They're reimbursing based on length of stay and readmissions and how many surgeries do you do? Um, but but I, actually, I was going to say, um, I, I do think it, 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 do, it will reach a tipping point where, uh, like you said, the, like, the right thing to do is just going to become the standard. So, you know, with enhanced recovery, I think at some point there's going to be a tipping point where ERAS is the right thing to do. People will get reimbursed for it or it'll just be the expectation. And, and then it won't just be the people who cared who did it. You know what I mean? Right. Yep. And prehab is not quite there yet. I would say prehab is probably where ERAS was maybe 10 years ago in terms of how well known and widespread and validated it is. Um, but I would say, you know, 10 years from now, I mean, it would, it would be kind of disappointing if something like prehab wasn't the standard. It's interesting that you bring up enhanced recovery as well, because enhanced recovery is, you know, supposedly looking at the entire perioperative journey of a patient. Um, one thing I will mention, uh, Dr. Dan Engelman, um, the, he's the president of the, the Cardiac Enhanced Recovery After Surgery Society. Um, he's actually, and, and that group has actually incorporated prehab into their enhanced recovery recommendations. So I think that's, that's neat how they've, they've recognized, okay, prehab is definitely beneficial and we need to include that into the perioff journey for a patient. So what you're telling me is that uh, ERAS did an M&A, an acquisition where they've acquired <laughs> prehab and, <laughs> and, and now it's a subsidiary of, of enhanced recovery. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's growing. And, ERAS is yeah. growing. I think, and and it, but it is interesting because societies obviously play a role in disseminating what's what's working, and and uh, to to all the the doctors out there, and uh, I think the American politics. Maybe, maybe on that note, Alan, uh, just because you're on ERAS, so you know our friend uh, Dionysus Brahidis, who's the uh, ERAS champion at Atrium Health and the the president of the ERAS USA Society, um, they've also been doing prehab um, at at in Carolina's medical center. Um, for, for their, uh, uh, their, their, I think their HPB patients, probably some others as well. Um, so for sure, there's a, there's a connection between the two. There's lots of folks who are doing both ERAS and prehab, or maybe even just calling it ERAS at this point. Yep. Well, and I know the, the American College of Surgeons, they had um, a big like public health campaign called Strong for Surgery. And I think that's even still running today. That, that was since maybe 2012 uh, that it was kind of implemented or, or launched back then. Uh, and it's basically a quality improvement initiative aimed at, you know, implementing prehab. And, and uh, I think what's neat, the, the strong for surgery umbrella at the American College of Surgeons, what's cool is they've actually put checklists out that are available to the public, um, assuming that you're a clinician. So you can actually download their checklists and it would basically have all the protocols uh, marked down and for providers to actually check off. Yes, I've mentioned this to my patient. Yes, I've been tracking this there's probably a checklist in there for, do you have an actual survey collection tool, whether it's paper or a digital patient engagement solution? Um, 
So I think that's really neat. And they have other, you know, uh, resources available for smoking cessation, for instance, they have different uh, um, uh, resources available for, for different, uh, different measures. Yeah, and just for, for folks who don't know, um, Strong for Surgery was started by uh, uh, Dr. Tom Verghese, who's a, a thoracic surgeon out of the, um, I believe, University of Utah. Um, but he used to be in Washington State where they launched Strong for Surgery and he moved, moved to Utah afterwards. But uh, he's been a fantastic proponent of, of prehab and, and Strong for Surgery, obviously. So um, definitely worth checking out those resources for sure. Right. And, and I mean, I've heard even the term Strong for Surgery at other, like I know at Sage's events, I've heard Strong for Surgery and there's whole talks on that and dedicated to it. Uh, to be honest, I didn't know it was prehab until maybe a couple of years back when I really researched into what is strong for surgery, but it makes a lot of sense. The, the name yeah, I, I, I think uh, I'm, I'm just like, I look at some of their resources. They, they kind of put prehab as part of strong for surgery. So I think they've added a few other things around it. Uh, so there's overlap, but they've added like um, some other specific protocols as well. So I think if, if let's say you've done prehab or you're looking for something bigger to do, it's, it's definitely gonna be a good resource to look at. Right. Um, now, what about some of the, the partners who we've actually helped with prehab? Um, I know there's some prominent groups in, in California, for instance. There's uh, Dr. Cindy Ken, who's an excellent uh, general and colorectal surgeon. Um, what have we seen with prehab on Seamless MD or with uh, some of those groups? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, we met uh, Cindy at, at Stanford uh, uh, several years ago. And... Uh, it's a funny story. So, I mean, she reached out to us after she heard about us from, I think, an anesthesiology colleague. Um, but for her initially, um, the interest in Seamless was about just not having, not, not for her patients not to have to deal with, you know, like a 50 page binder about guiding them through a colorectal surgery. But then, and, and so I think initially the goal was to use uh, Seamless MD for, for enhanced recovery after surgery for colorectal, which is what we did. And we did some great work with her. Um, but she also had an interest in prehabilitation. And so what we did was um, they had already done, I think, prehab, um, I'll call it manually, so on paper and, and verbal instructions. But I think one of the challenges uh, that they had in, in their group was that it took a lot of staff time to be educating a patient on prehab. I mean, there was no accountability, so like no one's checking in with the patient, you know, how many steps did you actually walk? Are you walking, you know, 5,000 steps a day? Um, are you doing your Mediterranean diet? And so we basically helped um, digitize that protocol and then added that prehab, um, essential, like essentially those prehab workflows onto uh, their colorectal EROS version on SeamlessMD so that patients were like uh, being reminded to um, do their exercise. We were prompting them to walk at least 5,000 steps a day. They were getting education about their Mediterranean diet, about smoking cessation, whatever was in their protocol. Um, and they actually did a, an analysis where um, they actually compared, I think, you know, I think 250 colorectal surgery patients on prehab on seamless MD with a, a control group that that wasn't. And they saw, you know, statistically significant reductions in, uh, I think, in pain scores, opioid use, Tylenol use um, through this combined digital prehab and digital engagement platform. Um, so that was actually a really, really great experience for us doing prehab with her team there. Um, and I think actually we can link that, Alan. There's a Stanford actually wrote a story about, about that work that we can share if people are interested. But uh, shout out to, to Cindy uh, Kin and, and her team at Stanford for continuing to do fantastic 
innovative work in the prehab uh, space. Yep, definitely. And I, I think, you know, mentioning these 50 page binders that would be for an enhanced recovery program, uh, obviously we're all human and we like to get information in bite-sized chunks. That's why, you know, Twitter's done so, so well as yeah. an example, but it makes sense. And, and if you can distill information down to the, the shortest form, then you're more likely to get compliance around that. Um, how does SeamlessMD kind of support that uh, prehab work? I'm, I'm assuming it's delivering the actual content to the patient, but is there anything more to it? Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, remind them to actually meet certain protocols for, for let's say, exercise or walking. So it's, it's not only telling them to walk a certain number of steps every day, but it actually helps them set goals for how many steps they want to walk and, and helps them track uh, accountability for it. The care team can monitor that too if they want to, and then maybe uh, you know call up patients who are falling off track and not maybe mobilizing as much. Um, it educates them with content on proper nutrition, tracks that they're following it. Um, if if incentive spirometry is important, um, as it would be for you know let's say groups in Michigan, then you know you could use it to um, again like remind patients and track compliance with incentive spirometry, uh, point to content on mindfulness and positive thinking, um, and the idea is that. Um, Imagine you have a big department of surgery with like 10 different divisions, cardiac, thoracics, abdominal wall, reconstruction, gynecology, everything. Um, you can literally create a single prehab, you know, program on Seamless and then just enroll every patient on it. Um, and frankly, you don't even need to have someone to monitor it because so much of it is self-guided. Right. And, and the idea is that traditionally you'd have to hire all these staff members to educate patients on prehab, but instead you can just put them on Seamless guide them through prehab, and then reap the benefits of, of that scalable digital intervention. That, that's the power of, of being able to do it at scale. And that's what, I think that's what makes prehab really exciting, that unlike enhanced recovery, prehab specifically doesn't have to be so tailored to each clinical specialty. You can truly do what Michigan did and deliver a standardized prehab protocol. Yeah, totally. I, I think, it, I mean, it would be interesting as well to do a, a deeper analysis. I think maybe you mentioned this earlier, but to figure out maybe there are some differences within these specialties that could really take it to the next level or, or something like that. But, uh, and I, I think that's also where digital technology can, can really play a part is let's say, you know, you have a, a pre-existing prehab program and you want to make a change to that program. Well, if you have it all in paper and all in binders, you have to go through and sticker over all those mentions and, and fix it all up. Um, whereas with digital technology like SeamlessMD, you can make that change in one place and then all of your, your patients in the program uh, will receive that update. I think that's really Yeah, powerful. or even just like, let's say you're a big, you know, 50 hospital system and prehab's going really well on a digital platform at one hospital and you want to suddenly get into the other hospital. It's just so much easier if you can just add in the other hospital on the platform and, and disseminate the patients. Uh, it's, I'm, I'm oversimplifying the process. You obviously have to like ensure the clinical team is aware of it and things like that. But the delivery of it, once people are bought in, is just so much easier at scale. Yeah, it, it, I, in my head, that might reduce some of the friction to getting patients all on a prehab program. Mm -hmm. I think um, there's, and you mentioned this earlier, but there is this, um, belief probably that you know I'm as a surgeon I'm already giving that instruction to my patient but there's not that accountability aspect there's not that actual tracking and, and making sure that the patient's actually following the the instructions so that's where the digital technology can really help with hey if you want to get your program on prehab you can just move it over to that program or, or the next hospital that's part of your system it's it's you know as easy as setting up a new a new link or <laughs> that's really it um, absolutely 
I think, uh, you know, in, in my research, there's a ton of uh, papers out right now on prehab, especially in Europe and, and across the world. And, and there's starting to get more and more research that's coming from North America, Canada, and the United States. Um, some of the prevalent prehab programs that I've heard of, obviously the, the teams that, uh, you know, we work with and are, are quite familiar, um, but, you know, for instance, like Stanford and Cindy Ken and, and Atrium Health with Dr. Verhides. Um, but there's there's also other groups. Um, you know, we've mentioned the MSHOP. University of Michigan is obviously a big one with Dr. Anglesby, uh, Franco Carley and Leanne Feldman, obviously huge work in, in McGill. Um, uh, but there's other teams as well out there. I know I, I read around there's some UCSF. They've been doing some great work with led by uh, Dr. Emily fin Finlayson. Um, I'm probably butchering her name. Finlayson. Emily Finlayson. You know, you... You have, to, you have to invite her onto the podcast so she can correct you. <laughs> I'll reach out to her, actually. That's a good idea. She's she's honestly done some amazing work yeah. uh, looking at frailty and, and prehab patients. Um, but I think it is pretty cool how you've mentioned, you know, it's across different specialties as well. So, you know, um, that was for the Department of Surgery, but there's neurosurgery work. And Mount Sinai in New York has done some some great prehab programs with neurosurgery. There's uh, urology teams at Brigham and Women's, for instance. Um, do you know any of those teams or, or anyone else who's, who's actively involved in that? Uh, no, I, I don't know those teams, although I, I hope that they uh, listen to this podcast and get excited about talking to us. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think in addition to having these checklists that they're putting out, there, there is another step and there is another component that can really make their life easy and, and make patients, you know, uh, engage with their, their programs that they want and to get those better outcomes. And, you know, summarizing again, it's, it's outcomes around length of stay, it's outcomes around recovery times, pain management, quality of life has improved, feeling stronger. Um, there's just a, a ton of improvements and it seems like such a simple activity. Something else that we didn't mention, you know, typically when you're scheduled for an elective surgery, there's a period of time that you have to wait before your surgery date anyways. So why not get the patient actively involved in their, in their care earlier? It just seems That's like good. a no brainer. Yeah, I'll tell you, one of the interesting things I've heard, and there's a bit of controversy, I think, sometimes between uh, people who uh, wanted to prehab and those who may not want it, is if there's some surgeons or anesthesiologists who feel that every patient should get prehab if they're having major surgery, even if that means delaying the actual surgery date by a couple of weeks to, to give the patient a better chance to recover. There are certain surgeons who are against that saying, no, like, I don't want my surgery date delayed by a month if I can book it in next week. So there definitely is still some ongoing, I think, hmm. uh, debate about between different parties about, you know, how much prehab time should they have? And is that, is that worth it if it's risking delaying the surgery? So I think that that still is being sorted out. But I think the body of evidence suggests in general that, hey, if you can prehab a patient, you should prehab a patient. Right. Um, one other thing that, that I actually, we kind of glossed over with, with the work that uh, Dr. Cindy Cannon has done at Stanford is the fact that you know, like, gosh, like with prehab patients, uh, the opioid uh, use went down, the pain went down. Mm -hmm. I mean, gosh, um, you know, we keep talking about with opioid reductions, prescribe less pills, but look at the fact that there's interventions like prehab, which reduce pain so that patients need less pills in the first place. That's phenomenal. I mean, like, why, why are we looking at more interventions that reduce pain in the first place? Right. Totally. I mean, that's actually, that's actually a very, I don't know if I've seen many uh, clinical work done showing that prehab reduces pain and opioid use. That's actually pretty compelling. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree. There, there's probably a ton of studies that would be really beneficial to have at this point. More studies of the same nature that Dr. Cindy Kim has done, but uh, I, I would like to know, you know, what amount of time or what amount of intervention is, you know, going to bring that 80% of the result. And maybe it isn't four weeks, maybe it is, you know, only two and a half weeks. If you can fit that into a pre-app program, that's where you get 80% of the, the benefit. That would yeah. be interesting to see as well. Yeah, and it ends up being like, what, what's, what's practical? So I think people end up, end up figuring out, like, what's a practical amount of prehab that we can get most people to buy into that has the biggest benefit? So like maybe you can't get every patient or provider on board with the four-week prehab program, but maybe right. you can get them on board with a two-week program, and that still has major benefit. I think we'll have to, to see how that goes. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, it's one of those things where, Things can work well in a confined setting, but then what do the parameters have to be for it to successfully get adopted and scale? I guess we'll, we'll have to see. Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, it's neat that this is kind of the, the, the forefront of what's happening in surgery right now, and it's exciting to see where this is going to go. Absolutely. And hey, Alan, you know, we don't, I know we don't uh, let our, our viewers into the, the podcast so much, but I'll throw it out there. If there's any viewers who have certain topics that they want us to cover, um, you know, whether it's related to digital patient engagement or kind of loosely related, um, let us know. I think we're very open-minded. We want to explore new topics that are helpful. So uh, reach out to Alan, reach out to myself, let us know if there's something you want to us to dive into. Or also, there's certain people you want to join. we got some guests lined up, but, uh, you know, we, we always pander to the, the crowd, right, Alan? So <laughs> exactly. the people, people get. <laughs> And to piggyback off of Josh, I mean, uh, in order to get the word out there, please share the the podcast if you found it, you know, the information in here, um, relevant and and uh, exciting. Then please share it around with your contacts, like comments, you know, let us know what you think of the, the material. <laughs> like, comment, subscribe. Yeah, I feel like a YouTuber now. <laughs> yeah, but. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I've enjoyed learning about prehab. I think it's an exciting topic and, and it seems to, you know, it's, it's improving outcomes across tons of different areas. And, you know, obviously with the opioid crisis, we just released that podcast. But if this is another modality, another intervention that can help in, in that cause, then, you know, that's amazing. Absolutely. Awesome. I really enjoyed this, Alan. Thank you for taking the time as always. Thank you, Josh. All right. Have a good All one. Right. You too. Take care, Alan. Bye.